to We Are DB. I'm Danielle, joined as always by Brenton. Hi there. And welcome to our special guest this week, Jessica, Brenton's sister. Hey, how's it going? Cool. How's it going? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us for our, our honorable mention episode this month, as we take the opportunity to talk about a great film that just missed out on being on the IMDb's list of the best movies of all time. This month, rated at 8.0 on the Internet Movie Database by millions of film lovers from around the world, is The Revenant. Released in 2015, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy as the two leads, The Revenant is an epic Western film set in 1823 on the American frontier, based partly on the 2002 novel of the same name by Michael Punk? Punky? I don't know. Punk? Punk? And partly on the life of frontiersman Hugh Glass, the film is written, produced, and directed by Alejandra... Inaritu. Inaritu. Inuritu. Inuritu has... Shut up. <laughs> Inuritu hasn't made a feature film since making The Revenant, but the year just before making it, he made Birdman, for which, along with The Revenant, won him two Best Director Oscars in a row. I'd like to just quickly note before we get into this, someone reached out to me on Twitter and said, because last month when we announced that we were doing The Revenant, I said it was in 2016, mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, it was actually 2015. Um, it was actually released in Australia in 2016, so that's why I said that. But um, from here onwards, we will be going off what the Academy recognizes. Yeah. And considering that this was uh, at the early 2016 Oscars, um, we'll say it's 2015 because that's officially when it was released. Yes. Now, I think there's three main sections here that we could break this down into. And because of the nature of this film, we're not going to break it up into spoilers and non-spoilers. We're just going to make the assumption that you've seen it. Um, something like this, it's going to be pretty difficult. So the three main things that we're going to be talking about, this episode could run a bit long, actually, particularly when Jessica's here. Well, and I have a lot to say. You got a lot to say. Politically and otherwise. As always. Yeah. So we could talk about the film itself and how great that is and the actors and the cinematography and how good it looks and the story of it. We could talk about the messages, the two main messages that this movie's trying to push is the native people and how they're treated and how they have been treated. And the climate change issues and how um, filming this really highlighted the issues there. So I think there's three main topics. Which ones would you want to dive into first? I think we should go into the movie first because that's really what people are here to listen to. However, this is a very important movie. And I think we really do need to do it justice by talking about everything that it has presented. This would have to be one of my favorite movies. It's just this raw movie about the environment and survival and love and deprivation and the ultimate connection between man and nature, and it's just awesome. What made you want to come on to this episode and talk about it? Is it just that connection you have with it that you like it so much that you have a lot to say? Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Cool. I was describing this to you before we watched it, and I was describing it as... Kind of like uh, a nature documentary with yeah. moments of action because it's filmed like planet Earth or something, you know. It's just these beautiful, long um, landscape shots. Well, I can definitely see why it got 
the Oscar for cinematography because it got that, didn't it? Or was it just nominated? No, that one and Birdman, they both got cinematography. Okay, I can definitely see why it got that. Actually, the cinematographer who won the award, Emmanuel Lubetsky, he has been nominated for eight Academy Awards, all for cinematography. He won it three times for Gravity, Birdman, and The Revenant three years in a row, and he's the only person to do that. Because he, he made a very big point to do a lot of this natural. He did it in natural lighting at sunrise and sunset, which I can't imagine how much of a pain in the ass that would have been, um, trying to get all your, your actors and, and everything just timed. Um, but at that time of day, trying to get just that natural lighting. And I think that's why there's so many long, unbroken shots, because they only had one shot. Yeah. You can only do this, and then otherwise we've got to pack up and try again tomorrow. But I also think that that's because it makes the movie so much more seamless. Yeah. If you're constantly taking shots and then stopping and then cutting them all together instead of just making it one smooth transition, it makes the movie so much more immersing. Well, we were watching that documentary from like the behind the scenes mm. um, after this, and there was a line in there from Leonardo DiCaprio, and he said that Inaritu films it as if it's like a VR experience. It really immerses you in there. It makes it feel like you're one of the people going on this journey with them and not someone watching a movie because of the way he films it. It's a very intimate film. Yeah. And it really came across. And the thing I like is that you, he does it so well that you don't notice. You know what I mean? So there were a lot of shots, particularly the one that comes to my mind is over the waterfall when they're crossing the river. Mm-hmm. Because that came up from the bottom. I don't know if they did a drone or an arm camera or what they did, but it comes up and then over the waterfall and then it kind of does a 360 and then it the scene ends. It like wraps around one of the actors as well. Yeah, and then it goes back into the waterfall and it was just impressive as all hell. Yeah. You know what I mean? And in doing that, that would have been so complicated logistically to work out. But you, I didn't even really notice because I don't notice unbroken shots. Yeah. But you point them out to me often, and then I say, wow, you know, like, that's really You're right, I didn't impressive. notice it, but, but yeah. now you've mentioned it, it hasn't cut yet. The whole movie's full of this. Some of them were, like, five, six, seven minutes long, mm. jumping from character to character, and you have to, like, get them going through this dialogue, and then it goes over to another one, and it still hasn't cut yet. Like, oh. that must be a lot of pressure on the actors. Specifically that one of the opening scenes where they're f- trying to grab the pelts and get to the boat and where the Kree come in and they're having this basically mini battle, just all the sweeping and the the choreography of the actors and the animals and all this sort of stuff. It's just all unbroken. It's great. And I think, like you said, Brenton, pressure on the actors. There were a lot of people who hadn't acted previously. Yeah. Mm. So, holy crap, well done. I can't even imagine how stressful that must have been for him as a director but it also kind of says a lot about his directing skills that he was able to pull this off with like the resources that he had and the people that he had working with him it really shows that he had a lot of patience and a lot of skills a lot of as patience a yeah yeah um it took over like up to five years for to them to make this film because of all the complications and things that they well, had and i wonder how long were they actually in filming he said that he was. they were, like, immersed in nature for a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. It's, like, 20% of your time with the principal production and the post. A whole year that they were trying to, to go between these areas and things. Which must have been difficult because 
like Leo and Tom Hardy were both working on other projects at the same time. Yeah, you'd be flying in and out of Calgary all the time. Yeah. Or Argentina. There was that shot straight after the one you were describing uh, where they went up the river to get away from the, the natives. Mm. It is fairly early in the movie and it's one of the more establishing shots that Fis- Fitzgerald's meant to be the antagonist. They get off the boat and you see a donkey like uh, taking some of the yeah. things off. And then it follows the actors as they're like climbing up this incline. And then when they get to the top, there's some of them already up there. They're trying to like unload these pelts. Oh, this is um, right after they got off the boat. Yeah, yeah and yeah. Leo's sitting there polishing his rifle. Right, and right, then right. It, it follows some of the actors and then it gets to Tom Hardy and then Tom Hardy walks over to them and they have this interaction. Um, mm. And the whole time, it still isn't cut. And then it follows Tom Hardy again and he walks away. Um, and I think it eventually cuts there, but it's quite a few minutes and there's quite a lot happening in that scene that even if one of them, like they must've just rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. And we did see some of that in the behind the scenes, but it's, it's just impressive as hell. Yeah. And that's the one, that's the first one that you pointed out to me that, Hey, this is an unbroken shot. And I said, Holy crap, you're right. He did it in such a way that it really feels like, like you said, it's immersive. Like you're the one talking to him and that's Mm. why you don't really notice. No, very impressive. Every shot of this, like every frame, looks like a professional photograph that should be framed in a gallery. Oh, it's so beautiful. It like, looks just so the good, scenery. yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, and I think I wrote it down, that there are so many scenes, like so many of those just kind of cut scenes almost, where it'll just be like a picture that they're showing on screen, where you couldn't plan this. You'd just go out and you'd look around and you'd find yeah. something, you know, and you say, I want to include that. And I think it's so beautiful because he's incorporating, like, an art gallery exhibition into this movie. You know what I mean? Well, it's meant to feel immersive. Like, there was ones with the ants, like, yeah. crawling up the thing. And then there's, like, the way that the frost has, like, sort of fro- frozen or melted. On the leaves. Yeah. That was there's my- quite a few of them. There's just little shots where you you couldn't plan it, but you're just looking for these things. Mm. I think a part of that is to add credence to the fact of the impact that we have on the environment. Like, if we in this time in the 1820s where it, it is more untouched and then it's kind of make you think about, oh, when was the last time I saw something that pretty or that untouched and that raw in the environment? You don't. Yeah. I really wanted to talk about this and I noticed it fairly early on in the movie. It was really bizarre for me watching this because where they shot it, that's pretty much where I grew up. And I've never seen that on film before or in like box office film before. Mm. So it was really bizarre to look at like that kind of tree and the way the snow falls like that and you know just stuff like that and say holy crap like that's so nostalgic for me. And it was really strange because again too, you don't generally see that landscape in movies. I I remember pointing it out to you. I said that's weird and you said what is it? I said that's spruce. You never see spruce in film. You see pine. But you never see spruce. You see, to me, it just looks like any other American, like, wilderness sort of thing. Yeah. You see that in quite a lot of films. And you're like, not quite like this. Yeah, and I'm I was like, well, say- it looks similar to me. Mm-hmm. But that's the difference for me is that it was, because I'm so familiar with it, mm. it was just really, it was a strange feeling to watch and to to say, you know, like, I, I recognize that. Because a lot of this was filmed in Alberta, Canada, wasn't it? Yeah. As someone who grew up in Canada and specifically around that region, how accurate do you think the portrayal of the land is? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. That area, too, is really quite flat. They filmed there because of the mountains, because Mm -hmm. they wanted to include that. 
but the flora is very much the same as where I grew up. Where I'm from is is boreal forest region, which they really talked about mm-hmm. in the documentary and stuff. That's where I'm from, mm-hmm. right? So to see that, it was really cool. Continuing on from those sort of immersive ideas that he was trying to do, I really like the incorporation of... There's a few times where the actors, like, breathe on the lens and you mm. see that, um, and there's, like... Sometimes there's water on the lens and they don't worry about getting it off because it makes it feel like you're actually there. This isn't mm-hmm. some edited film. Um, you're actually up and close. Like, even with the bear attack, yeah. it breathes on the lens, and that's not a real bear. So they've added that in there consciously to try and make you feel like you're just watching this as it's happening. Like I said, it's it's a very intimate film, but in relation to what you said and the breathing on the on the lens, even when he's fighting Tom Hardy at the end, I'm pretty sure they knock the camera as they're... Yeah, they bump it. But it's the small things that make you go, oh, wow, like, I feel this right now. Yeah. And both of those shots, um, the one with the final scene where he's rustling around with Tom Hardy and the bear scene are both... uh, They are unbroken and they've got those elements in there. I think this is easily the best and the most accurate depiction of a bear attack ever. Yeah, the way that it's depicted, not only the way it's depicted in in its gruesomeness, and it the gruesomeness in it is kind of subtle, but it's necessary. It's not focused on it like someone like Tarantino would do. You know what I mean? It's just sort of an element of the story. It's not a focus of anything really. I really wanted to ask your opinion on that attack from a medical perspective. I really appreciated that they included the damage to his body, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like you you hear about things like this, especially I don't know how much this happens here with things like maybe like crocodiles and boars, but at home, bear attacks do happen, you know, cougar attacks happen. And you hear that, but you don't really understand what it entails. So to see this is like, wow, like that's that's what'll happen to your body. Like for me, the scene that really kind of went, whoa, is when they flipped him over and the blood was pouring out of his yeah. back. And with your background, I just want to know what. how do you feel about how they portrayed that? Because I thought it was really very educational. I think they did an excellent job of trying to make those gouges from the bear as realistic as possible. Mm-hmm. Like, you can see the tissue where mm-hmm. it would have been torn. There's a spot there where... During the attack, the bear, like, grabs at his shoulder and rips a chunk yeah. of flesh off. Ugh. And there's something about that where it would work like that. Like, tissue, we're yeah. not invincible. Like, we're just a bunch of meat, you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, and it's it's really interesting, as I constantly think about it sometimes, is us as humans, we are this well-put-together piece of machinery over thousands of years of evolution. But at the same time, you can step off a gutter and break your ankle. Like, there's, yeah. no, there's no in-between. And I think it's really, really interesting that he just gets torn to shreds. Literally. Yep. Yeah. I just thought the whole thing, that scene and then him healing and then even with the scene with the medicine man and everything, Mm -hmm. I thought all of that was just so well constructed and well played out just to show you what that life would have been like then. That bear scene was praised because of how the bear reacted as well. Like, obviously, it's a CG CG bear and they got to choose what it was doing. But what they got it to do, he was standing in between the bear and its cubs. Mm. Of course, it's going to attack in that situation. And the way it attacks as a reaction, it goes back to its its young and then comes back later. And that's exactly what the bear would do. Um, And most of the time, it would just keep going back and forth and it it would do a little bit every time. But 
it was praised a lot for its accuracy as mm-hmm. to how it's the whole thing is depicted the way the bear reacted and the way he reacted and the way his injuries were was very accurate. Well, and I think, again, being from that area where that is a very real risk that could happen, I think it's so important to show that accurately because you want to know what's going to happen to you. You know what I mean? People don't think of it. You think about, oh, they're going to attack you and then they might swat you on the head and you're done. Nah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, Can you imagine getting eaten by a creek? Mm, like, you guys... Like, everyone says that Australia is so dangerous. I remember. Yeah. We've got, like, ooh, a spider and a snake. You guys have, like, wolves and cougars and bears that are, like, a ton, like, moose and elk. I remember when you came to Canada for the first time. You weren't terrified, but you were like, of course I'm fucking scared. Like, well, of course I am. everyone was telling me, yeah, don't go out, like, on your own because the cougars will get you and you won't see them until they're on you and eating your face. And I'm like, oh, cool. Thanks for telling me that. Well, I remember in this scene, I think I turned to you and said, like, I'd be shitting myself if I was him and I saw babies because I'm like, where's mom? In relation to the question that you originally asked me about how accurate I think it is, Mm -hmm. the only thing that I think is slightly inaccurate is his recovery time. Obviously, I know it's a a two and a half hour film. You have to speed things up. But um, yeah, it's the only part that I find is actually inaccurate. Well, how long did you think that, that it was spanned for? This whole movie from beginning to end. I actually don't know. Because I was thinking it was six months to a year. Towards the end of it, when he's approaching the fort, I'm like, he's been out here for a long time, just slowly hunting this guy down. But then it also raises the question is, how long did it take Tom Hardy to get back to the fort originally with no no injuries? Yeah, he said, oh, in a couple of extra days isn't that bad. I'll see you in a couple of days, pretty much. And I think it showed a couple of days. He was out. Um, with the that other guy, so I don't I don't know. Like the the time is a bit mm. skewed. You're not really sure when the timeline is here. But I feel like it wasn't like a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand that. I remember when Leo's character Glass actually does get back to the fort, and he's sitting there and he's getting all salved up and everything. I'm like, holy shit! You know, like it's been so long, and yet there's still things that aren't healed too. Mm. It's just it's kind of juxtaposed because on the one hand you're like, yeah, it's really incredible that. How has he managed to be up and moving and doing everything with all these injuries, but at the same time, wow, that some of these things can take so, so long to recover. It was just an interesting point, and I'm glad that they really went into the continuity of making sure that he had the same injuries over time. Mm. And I love when he meets that very gentle, was he another pawnee man? Yeah, the one who got hanged. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I love it where he just like reaches over and he he goes, "Your body is rotten," and I'm like, "Boy, I bet." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I just wanted to note the meteor when it came over and he's standing. And for a long time, I was like, "What?" Oh yeah, what was the point of that? I was like, "What? What does this represent? Like, what is this?" And then um, I did a little bit of googling, a little bit of research, but it it's a um, in a sense, a nod to Birdman and how in one of the opening scenes, it's. A comet as well but also i was reading something from um alejandro about how he was saying that it's kind of a representation of how the character feels and how he's just burning and he's destructive and just keeping going for, yeah. for what yeah i remember when i first saw it i was like man did they just have the really bad luck of getting an airplane in their shot <laughs> that's that was my immediate thought because at first you saw the reflection on the water or whatever. Which is really clever because it doesn't actually show it. It just yeah. You see it in the reflection and then it shows it. Yeah. I just remembered what Birdman actually is about and that whole thing 
its sort of gimmick is that the whole movie seems like one unbroken shot, which is very impressive. Um, and a lot of it would have been, but it was spliced in a way to make it seem like the whole movie from beginning to end is uncut. Uh, and I think Alejandro is kind of like on the top of his game when it comes to those unbroken shots. He does them sort of better than anyone, really. Yeah. Kudos. Yeah. Mm. Seriously. So this film was nominated for 12 Oscars. And it won... It won three. A three. Um, there was Best Cinematography, Best mm. Director for Alejandro, and Best Actor for Leonardo DiCaprio. I think it deserved all three of those. Didn't they get Best Screenplay as well for both The Revenant and Birdman? No, it wasn't even nominated for screenplay. Interesting. There's not much of a screenplay here. <laughs> like, Leo doesn't have many speaking lines. Which I actually really love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's this, it's this movie about... And I think a reason why I really enjoy it is because it is... It's very visual. It is very visual. It's very gruesome. And it raises topics of today as well as the past without so much action and so much dialogue. But you get... The point? It's kind of the a picture speaks a thousand words thing. 100%, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, very much. No, I agree with you. I actually, okay, I actually think that Leo's Oscar was, um, I think he very much deserved some accomplishment, but I think he's had better performances in his career. And I think that because he's been nominated like five times without a win, they give it to him here. I would have really loved to seen Tom Hardy win one because I th- I love Tom Hardy. I've seen a lot of his films. I think this is by far his best performance. I don't know what He's it so is. Diverse. I don't know what it is about him playing Fitzgerald. It's just him putting that voice on and the way he like his facial expressions. I think it's because whenever I've seen him in interviews anyway, he's a very clean-cut, well-spoken British man and he's playing a fucking hillbilly you know what i mean that's what it but is it's a very good accent it's a very yeah, good voice but it's just that it's so different from what you'd expect from him it's like wow you know that you can pull this off and he the thing with that i notice about his character right away he never blinks he's got those like crazy eyes crazy eyes yeah. yeah he's very good at that he, you can just like stare into his eyes for like ages and he's just like staring into your soul straight back at you. He's very good at portraying that villainous character because of that. It's those little things, really. I think he absolutely should have got supporting actor. He was nominated for supporting. Um, I don't think he's ever won one. But I'd be very surprised if he never gets one. I was going to so say, it's, it's, a, it's only a matter of time. That's not really justice if he doesn't get one, you know. I love how you said he's a chameleon. Yeah. Like he just... Everything I've seen him in has been so different, and that's the mark. I think he's great, an underrated actor. Yeah, 100%. he's not really one of those people that's on the tip of your tongue. Is what's what's your favorite actor, or what's a great actor I would at, say Tom that's Hardy. playing at the moment? Um, there's a lot of roles of his that I'm like, is that Tom Hardy? Oh my god! Like, there's a lot of those reactions because it's not obviously him. You get these actors who do get do get the recognition. People like Samuel Jackson. You know who it is. You know he's not as much of a chameleon as this. Well, and I just wonder, is part of it, you know, that he's not on the tip of your tongue and in the forefront of your mind because he's not been in a lot of leading roles? That might be it. Like, most of the things I've seen him in, I think about it, he's not in a leading role. He's in, like, a, a inner circle supporting role, but yeah. he's not the guy. You know what I mean? So I do think that Leo deserved recognition. It was a very good performance. I just think it was more of a, you know... We haven't really given you recognition in the past. Here you go. Here's your Oscar. That said, 
like he said in the documentary, this was very different from anything he'd ever done. It didn't have a lot of speaking roles, and that, I think, deserves recognition that you can still portray a character without lines. Because you have to act differently. You have mm. to act. Yeah. Purely. Just on that note, especially as he spent a lot of that movie by himself with no support, so to be able to portray everything that you need to portray with no one to bounce off. Yeah, because you know exactly what's going on just yeah. by looking at him. You know exactly what he's thinking just by looking at him. That, Survival. Well, to but to be able to portray that he's level... thinking, ouch, ouch, ouch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but to be able to portray that level of transparency is quite an accomplishment, I think. He very much went in... Have you seen his acceptance speech for that Oscar? I... Okay, so that was he, the first Oscars I ever saw. He went very much into that acceptance speech, knowing exactly what he wanted to say. He was just like, hi, thanks for the award. This is what my thing is. This Listen is my to platform. me. Yeah, this is my point. I, I want to take this as an opportunity to acknowledge that I was somewhat ignorant. So he, as far as I remember, and I think this is fantastic, he used his acceptance speech as a platform to talk about climate change. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly what celebrities should do. You should use your your celebrity as an opportunity for advocacy. And I think that's fantastic. I remember thinking as someone from Alberta at that time, I was like, you stupid bugger. Like, that's not climate change. That's a Chinook. So what happens often in in What's a southern Alberta, it's a southerly wind that comes off the mountains in such a way that it creates a pressure system and high temperatures so you'll get in the middle of the dead cold of winter a really beautiful warm day and it'll cause melting and things. And so there was a lot of backlash to what he said about, this is the worst climate change we've ever seen, blood, no snow, the natives reacting, you know, they'd never seen this in their life. People had seen that, you know, that's, that's actually a very normal occurrence. I think what I didn't realize and what a lot of people brushed off is that maybe this is, they hadn't seen it happen like this before mm. or to this extent but the idea of you go in at that time and then all of a sudden there's no snow that's not uncommon for that area but I want to take this moment to acknowledge that I kind of brushed off his platform there because I was like well I know better than you because he was wasn't he talking about like the tar sands and things on the oil yeah. It was it was a couple of things that he was addressing and you're like, well, it's not actually that bad because of this and you, you don't actually know what you're talking about. Is yeah. that what we were thinking that then? Was, that was basically it. And the thing is, I've done more research since then too. I think environmentally, he was on the mark, but he wasn't completely on the mark. Politically, I think this movie was 100% on the mark. Now, looking back at it, do you agree with the way that he presented himself at those acceptance speeches? Because I know you didn't at the time. I agree with the way he presented himself. I still think maybe he, as someone not from there, didn't quite understand that this is a somewhat regular occurrence environmentally. But at the same time, I'm recognizing that I didn't realize that it wasn't entirely a normal occurrence. Do you think that it's a part of him that has done that intentionally for the people that aren't native to that area to make them realize that to exaggerate what is actually happening for people to kind of get the hint that we are past the point yeah. pretty much of no return yeah and 
that said, like, taking a step back and looking at it big picture, okay, so if a couple locals don't get it, that's okay. Whereas if everybody in California with the big bucks and the big houses is like, holy crap, Mm -hmm. that's good. You know, that is good. See, I would think that Leo knows more about this than most people. Well, and I also didn't realize at the time either that he had done his other documentary. He was he was probably released in 2016. It was probably around the similar time as this, yeah. where he was focusing on climate change, because he's a big advocate of that. He's been an advocate for a while, a though, quite hasn't he? A long time, yeah. yeah. He was... Like, he's, early 20s? His early 20s? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Is he part of the, like, a UN representative Yeah, he was... He was. He's been at the UN a fair bit. I'm. I'm not sure what his title exactly, hmm. but he's. He's spoken there, and he's very passionate about this. I think he has done his research, and I think he only had a like a minute to talk or whatever. So I think any sort of um things that you were picking up on in that speech where you weren't really agreeing with his tone or the way he worded something, I think that's just because of his time frame. Yeah. I think he was just trying to use that platform to get that information out as quick as possible because he was very passionate about well, it. And I was also just ignorant to the fact that he was so well-educated on it. Yes. So I was looking at it as, you don't know what you're talking about. He actually does. So that's me saying I didn't know what I was talking about. Probably because you do hear a lot of people who aren't educated and haven't read the literature on it or don't know what they're talking about and they're just regurgitating what they've seen online and it's false information, well, you know. And it gets it gets tiring to hearing people shit on your home and your family's livelihood because I can imagine. Pretty much all of my family works in the oil industry. Is it flawless? Absolutely not. Does it have a way to go? Yes. But at the same time, like that's that's how we live. It's very similar to here with the coal industry because that is a massive thing that's not... Mm. I think I think it's even worse than the oil industry, really. Um, and that is also a big thing in Australia, but coal is still a very big thing. And it's kind of hard to constantly hear about how shit they're treating that and uh, ravaging the land and you're just constantly hearing this negativity around it. Um, I I imagine it's a very similar thing. Yeah. Well, and I just want to take a minute. Sorry to hop on my uh, soapbox, but coal is everywhere a very dirty industry. There's no reason why anybody in this world should be using coal for energy at this point in time. It all just comes back to money, everything. Yeah. Oil Mm -hmm. is processed. It's a lot better process and a lot more environmentally friendly process, if you'd believe that, the way they process it and the way it's used to create energy. So, I mean... I mean, I advocate against coal, 100%. We've gone on a very large yeah. tangent. But it's a necessary one. I think that the movie was really pushing. For, there was there was two massive messages in that, one of them being the environment, and uh, particularly with Leo, um, and that's what he was trying to do with his expectant speech. Um, because they did have to shut down production um, for five months and go to Argentina just to find snow, and he says that in his speech. That was a big deal. See, you heard that and said, well, why'd you go there at that time? Yeah. I remember you saying, being, re- reacting to that in particular. Well, and again, that's me. I've gained a much better appreciation for film. When you watch a movie, you don't think about pre-production. So, of course, they scoped everything out. And at that time, it, there should have been snow there. You have to take into account that Chinooks do happen, and it's just based on a pressure system that comes through the mountains at a specific, you know, it, it could but happen whenever. five months? Well, that's the thing, right? Is that it happened in a way that, like, it's a normal thing that happens, but it happened in a way that isn't typical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have many, many questions um, as someone who hasn't 
I'm going to openly admit I haven't done a lot of research about um, the indigenous culture of Canada and North America. But um, I just want to talk about the the potential accuracy of the way that they dress and their mm. face paint. I don't understand. Does the face paint mean something? Like where they put it or... Because they've got, they've got tattoos as well yeah. as face paint. Yeah. I'm not going to claim to be any expert. I mean, I did grow up in an area that was surrounded by about six different indigenous communities mm-hmm. in close vicinity. Um, from my understanding, and any listeners listening, comment, correct us if I'm wrong, my understanding of face painting is that it's a it's a warrior thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll paint, like, war paint, mm-hmm. literally. Um, tattoos, I wasn't familiar with tattoos in any, like sub-arctic groups Mm -hmm. they're very common among inuit people and probably like people of greenland and stuff too um that said i wouldn't be surprised if that was typical Mm -hmm. and as far as costuming i think they did a good job because i remember thinking about like the let's call them the europeans the americans the way they were dressed the fur traders was quite accurate to what i'd seen in textbooks and things we learned about this in school Mm -hmm. right and I was very happy to see that they actually did have a lot of interaction with local Native communities to get it right. I was very happy to see it that. It seemed like there was a lot of consultancy. And I was I was like, I really hope there was. And there seemed to be. So that was really good. I just wanted to point out, point out as I did earlier, that um, Elk Dog yep. had a handprint mm-hmm. over his mouth. Obviously... Um, We've established that it's face paint and all that sort of stuff, but I do think that it gives a little bit of symbolism. Symbolism to the fact that you have no voice, you have no place, and you do not have a right to speak about the things that are actively happening in the movie and in real life. Mm-hmm. I've seen that design before, mm-hmm. um, so it wasn't surprising to me, but that is a very cool interpretation of it. I wanted to take a minute too to just talk about. Why I'm so glad that this movie was so accurate. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, we learned about this in history since grade three. Like, I've been learning about the fur trade and the native groups and beavers. And I knew about all the hats and everything since grade school. Um, Because that was the basis of what Canada was formed on, wasn't it? As my dad says, that was Canada's first economy. Would it not have been like... uh, like whaling or whale fat or something up north before that? Well, yeah, and that's what they said in the documentary, whale oil whale or oil. lamps and things like that. Um, it wasn't wanted... nearly as big as this, is that what you're saying? It was big, but they there were other places where you could get it. Right. You know what I mean? This was easy. You could go, go, I mean, not easy, but you could go out and find beavers, and it was very lucrative, like they were talking about. Um and it it was why people pushed from east to west. But the thing is, we were taught that it was almost a very jovial thing. You know, like you go out and you got your little toque and you got your canoe and you're going across the land and you're trading with the native people and it's all happy. Holy crap, no, it wasn't. Nobody teaches you that everybody went and shot everybody else. You know what I mean? And of course they did. As soon as you have any sort of confrontation, well, let's just get you out of the way. But you have to note which i did um earlier is the value on life is so low and it's accurately represented throughout this this movie that in the 1820s you had no value to your life if you i could expend you in at, at any moment and that's shown yeah 
See, we touched on that in the Good and the Bad and the Ugly discussion, which is set in the 1860s. And like you said, that's a good way to put it. They valued life less, really. Like not just your own, but other people's. Mm. You value other people's life less. And I think the point of this movie, particularly with the, the beaver trade, is to highlight the way that the Europeans ravaged the countryside and took advantage of the nature and the beavers, not only the the Americans who are now probably born there and have that accent, but the British and the French and the way that they interact with the natives. Well, we started a brief, brief conversation last night about treaties and things. And you said, well, because there was that scene where he said, this was our deal. You signed a contract yeah. for Fitzgerald. Yeah, the captain says that. Yeah. And just and that led into our conversation about um, Native American treaties and the British North America Act and the Indian Act. And it's a lot of politics that we don't need to get into here. But the the point was, and this is a theme across any colonized nation in the world, but specific to Canada, the idea of a contract and the idea of ownership did not exist the same way in indigenous culture. And European traders absolutely took advantage of that. Well, the reason I brought it up was because the captain, who uh, is played by Donald Gleeson, I think yep. he's actually really good in this role. Um, and I wish I'd spoken about it more when we were talking about the actors. Um, the captain really has got balls. I really like that he, he shows when he needs to be compassionate and when he needs to um, be a hard-ass, really. He's, he's a good captain. Anyway, he says, we had a deal. You signed a contract. And I was just thinking, could many people read and write? Like, how could you sign a contract or read a contract um, if you couldn't read and write? And Leo's character writes Fitzgerald killed my boy or killed my son or whatever mm-hmm. in a couple of places and I'm just surprised that he would be able to write and that's where it came up because you said they were doing uh, treaties and contracts with the native people and they didn't speak English so they were taking advantage of it there putting clauses into these treaties that they couldn't understand and taking or, advantage of that and beyond language barriers it was cultural barriers the idea yes. of owning the land didn't exist. That, yes, that doesn't mean like, the same thing. It's like owning my soul. You can't own my yeah, soul. Yeah, you can't own nature. It's exactly. its own living thing. Yeah, it's the creator's and no one else's. You know what I mean? That's a very good point. The yeah. idea of owning land. Like, yes, they had their sort of territories that they would sort of live in and the, these clusters, um, but they wouldn't own the land in the way that a westernized civilization would, would understand. Absolutely not. And that was a huge contention factor that again we were taught about a lot and it continues to be a problem to this day because now the contemporary idea of ownership does exist and so you've got land claims disputes and treaties that are still in place since that time but they've been transitioned from your medicine chest and your horse and your cow to dollar values and things. And it's just, it's a great big mess. It all comes back to money. It does. And that's another thing I wanted to talk about. These, I think this is so important for the way it represents the native people. And I'm so glad it was so accurate. And I'm so glad that it opened up the conversation and that they got people, they got people from so many different tribes. They did. It, you know? it seems to not just be representing the Pawnee people, but native First Nation people from all of North America. Important to not lump people into one group. Because it happened over the entire continent. You can't just say, oh, it happened to these people. Yeah. Um, It was a a broad representation. I just think I'm so glad that they did it that way. And I'm so glad that they're giving a very wide-reaching voice to people who 
traditionally have been oppressed and their voice taken away, um, that they get to tell their story their own way. I think that's important. And everything else? I was just listening, and I was, you guys make some very great points, and I was just happily listening. You just listened to the podcast. Live. <laughs> it's a live, live showing. Live version. I want to talk about symbolism okay. throughout the movie. Because um, you already spoke about uh, the handprint as the painting and the comet in the sky. Yeah. Um, also, I think it's very interesting that Glass, when he, towards the end of the movie, he's standing in that um, decrepit old chapel. And mm. he's standing there and he's looking at a mural of Christ. Mm-hmm. And to me, um, I thought that was very interesting, the parallels between Christ and himself as someone who... Was resurrected. Basically. That's which is, so interesting. Which is what the revenant means and the returning and yeah that's cool and it's interesting that by the end of this he decides not to take revenge the revenge is in the creator's hands yeah and that's when um that pawny man says that it he has this moment of realization and it hits him and you just see the camera and it's very close to his face where he he ponders this and he says it again as he lets Fitzgerald go into the into the river and he gets picked up by the crew. Mm-hmm. That water must have been so oh, cold, I know. like just for the actors. I'm sure they're wearing um, wetsuits and things underneath, like the thermal suits. But still, their hands, their their face. He says, "My heart bleeds, but revenge is in the Creator's hands." Yeah. So although he that's is, what he was told to. Yeah. Yes, although he is in so much pain and he is hurting, and he says he took everything from me. That boy was all that I had left. He still chose. But the revenge is in the creator. That's a very hand. interesting comparison to Christ and what they were trying to do there with that. Because it doesn't really relate to anything else. It's just sort of there. But if you're reading that into it, I can see a justification for that. Yeah. And I feel God and the thought of Christ throughout this movie was so interesting um, that even as they're fleeing the Cree in the beginning, when they're grabbing the pelts and going to the it's water. the right word. Isn't that what they were called? I think they could have been. And I'll just give you a little context. So the Cree people were from like Middle Canada, so um, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and whatever Those state. Middle states that no yeah, one knows the names of. <laughs> um, down there, and they were a warrior people. So there's a ton of Cree people where I'm from. They're they're not actually indigenous to there. The people who originally inhabited my area were called the Slavey people, and the Cree people came and. Who gave them that name? It's just that it was the native name. Okay, because I'm like, if that's a white person name, what does for it mean? I'm not sure. Well, and that's why it's like Slave Lake. That's where that came from, right? right? Okay. The Cree people came and fought their way into this area. So the fact that like they kept calling them the Rees, right? Oh. And I think I think I don't know if it was Cree people, but considering the history of them, I would not be surprised. Okay. Just wanted well, to say I'm, that. I'm sorry if I got that wrong. Yeah. It's fine. What were you, what was the point you were saying? Sorry. Oh, about Christ throughout the movie. Right. Yes. Is that even as they're fleeing? Um, from the indigenous population, um, the camera very, very briefly flicks over a Bible that's in the water. And to myself, I thought that that was very interesting that in all of this havoc and all of this destruction that's going around you, the first thing that you go to is a Bible. Yeah. And he's trying to save this Bible because that's his only protection. And I just thought that that was very interesting Mm. that God plays such a huge part in this movie. And God, whether it's... God as Christ or God as creator. Yeah. Yeah. And cool. how, how um, Fitzgerald talks about how his father, God is squirrel. Or that was weird. That was like, 
What was that again? He was talking about this man who... Wasn't it his father he was talking about? It was somebody. Or was it like a father, like a priest? Maybe. Holy man. Maybe. I don't know. It was somebody who was out in the wilderness and ha- was dying. And he said, I found God. And he said, God was a squirrel. And I ate that bastard or whatever but he said. To, yeah. in my mind, what that meant to me is that, um, especially coming from Fitzgerald as he's having, he's telling the story, that Fitzgerald to me is someone that is above God. He, well, he, it's very funny you say that because... Uh, towards the end of the movie, like the last scene that, that's very tense with uh, Fitzgerald, he's wearing a dead squirrel on his head. Yeah. Mm. He's He's got, like, which I hadn't noticed before. I didn't notice. But it zooms in on his face when he um he, sh- he shoots the dead captain thinking that it's glass. You, it zooms in and you can see the, the head of the squirrel. You can I'm see pretty the sure it was a squirrel. Whiskers. It was something. It could have been like a muskrat or something. Yeah. But I thought I'd, it was I a little was rodent, whatever it yeah. was. Yeah, it's a squirrel family. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that Fitzgerald's portrayed that way because his character was meant to be sort of a representation of white people at that time in regards to how they saw the natives. They're just like the, we've spoken about it already, but particularly with Glass's son, he's like he didn't think that he had any uh, position in their group because he was half native. Um, and that was just a representation of the people. And we were listening to it, to it in the documentary, and they were saying that it's not really his fault because that's the thought of the people at the time. They didn't understand it, and therefore they feared it. He was a product of his culture. Yes. So I brought this up too when I said, I don't know how people can go and just have so little regard for other people. And I wanted to... Again, it comes back to the value of life. Well, yeah. Well, because if you're going to hinder my life, I can't help you. You know what I mean? But also, you're not part of my group. You know, humans are very clan-oriented, mm. historically speaking, because it was a survival mechanism. But, like, I like the way that Inurito talked about it. He said, I didn't want to portray Fitzgerald as the villain because he really was just a product of his society. And we talked about, is that a brainwashing thing? People were really taught that unless you were white and unless you were British... You will you're, you're really not worthy, yeah. anything, and that comes into you know the Holocaust and everything again, and the way cultures have been treated all around the world in history, yeah, and I mean, I'm glad we're not in that now, but it just it brings up an interesting conversation point because there are still people who don't understand different cultures, and I think like the idea of you know I think the target group right now are Muslim people. But what did it, what is it that he says? He says something along the lines of, they don't hear your voice, they only see the, the color, color of your skin. face. Yeah. 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 And I think that that's put very Aptly, brilliantly yeah. in regards to that time in the 1820s and current day. Mm-hmm. No, I do too. The few establishing scenes um, where it was sort of trying to frame Fitzgerald as the, the, the antagonist. I was like, well, you're trying to force a villain here because the first sort of thing that he says is after Glass gets mauled and he says, I'll just put him out of his misery. Um, And he's meant to be seen as sort of the antagonist there. And I'm just like, I kind of agree with him. Like, the guy is very injured. This is 1823 um, and we have a job to do. We're in the middle of nowhere. I kind of agree. Just, like, spend a bullet and put him out of his misery because he's very much in pain right now. Well, and he's... He's an expense. It is. He's an and expense in time and safety and resources. You see that again later when they're trying to carry him on that stretcher up the up the hill. And he says, you got to leave him. Like, you put him out of his misery. 
Um, he, he's trying to convince the captain. And again, I'm kind of on his side there. And I'm like, yeah, because you've got all these guys that are using up the energy and time. Like, food is a scarcity at this time. It's not logical, really. And it, again, you're trying to paint him as a, as a bad guy. And it was only when Fitzgerald was trying to kill him while he's lying on the stretcher and then he stabs his son. That whole sequence is like, oh, okay, now he is the bad guy because he is... He's, he's out for blood after that point. The point for me where I'm like, you're just an evil bastard, aren't you? Is when he's like, all you have to do is blink. Yeah. I'm like... That was intense. Like, yeah. I was trying myself not to blink to see how long I could go for it. I don't know how Leo did it. I think any normal person would say, or, you know, compassionate person would say blink twice. Yeah. You know, because then he's like, oh, well, I told him this and he blinked. It must have been like 40 seconds or so, and he, he eventually closes his eyes, and he's like, there you go. Well, how long was he going to give him? If he didn't blink for two minutes, and then he slowly closes his eyes, does that count as a blink? Like, there wasn't much compassion there. He was completely heartless. Well, and you know what I think, too? He said, I'll shoot you, and I think he was actively contemplating it, a glass was, and then he wasn't going to shoot him. He was going to smother him to death. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's kind of twofold there. You know, he's he contemplating it and he's like, you know what? Yeah, okay, put me out of my misery. And then he just puts him through more misery. You know what I mean? Because he was going to give him a slow, painful death instead of a quick, painless one. I, th- I thought Tom Hardy played that character. But- yeah, I was just thinking of that. <laughs> yeah, that whole scene, particularly with the way they leave him in the grave, the way Tom Hardy plays that. He's got those evil eyes, really. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about is something that I didn't quite understand. Is when, again, that pointy man, he was hung by the French. Yep. And the sign, to my knowledge, um, translates to, we are all savages. Yes. Yes. But what I couldn't work out was why it was written in French, because I'm sure that that man didn't know how to write French. So what was it that the... The people who captured him, so he was just out of a French camp. Yeah, but why would they write that? Because in that time and throughout the movie, it's um, us against them. But now they're saying we are all savages. Okay, so I think this comes back to French semantics, actually. Mm-hmm. So it says only tout des sauvages, which means we are all savages. But he was if he was talking about we as in like the universal Including me. we, yeah, it would be nous sommes tout des sauvages. So he used the we as in all of you. Basically. Yeah. As okay. in like as in like saying I am versus one is. You know what I mean? That's the kind of way he was saying it is that one is meaning we as in them. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. That's going to be shit for people to try and figure out. It's what fine said. because there's a lot of times when you're translating between French and English where uh, the English sort of just sum up you, the word, like the word you could be a, a number of things. The, the French have different words for different things, like different uses. And it's kind of a little more handy because it's a little more logical. The plural you disappeared from English. So you thought the Frenchman was saying that he was also a savage? Yeah. Right, okay. No, he was saying it from the perspective of the man he hanged. Okay. Yeah. I liked the strange kind of visionary scenes that, that he showed of like his wife hanging over him in the field or him standing looking at all the buffalo skulls. Like the dreams that he was having. Yeah, I thought those were really cool to include. Oh, were they buffalo skulls? Yeah. For so long, I thought they were the skulls of... I thought it was too, but there's a few close-ups where it shows the, that it, it is a buffalo skull. Yeah. Um, Because it was a very common thing 
to kill the buffalo at the there, time. There was a bounty out, a very large reward for the person who could bring in the last buffalo skull. Oh, really? Yeah, so that's what that was about. I don't know how you would ever, like, a bounty to bring in a buffalo skull, but the last one? How do you ever have the last buffalo skull? I don't know. That was what it was for. I'm just going to kill one yeah. now and hold on to it until they're, they're all gone, and then I'll claim that this is the last one. Well, I think you might have had to bring it in as not a skull, but a head. I don't know. Right. Anyway, point is, there's a lot of historical context that lends more understanding to this. Why point. did they hate the buffalo so much? Uh, it just sounds like, fuck these guys, they're pests, kill them all. No, I think it's the same thing as, like, let's just get all the beavers we can because... Like, the more I can get right now, the more rich I'm going to be right now. Okay. Even if we get rid of all the beavers, at least I got my piece when it, when they were still around. I've just, I've heard those things before, um, particularly here up in the north with crocodiles. Mm-hmm. There was a, a rule where you're allowed to kill as many crocodiles, bring them in, because they were pests, right? They're Have you dangerous. seen, complete tangent, have you seen a picture of, like, the largest crocodile in Queensland or whatever it was? It was, like, 16 foot, and it was, like... There was one in Northern Territory. Yeah, of wherever it was, it was ripped for a crocodile. Like it was it, ripped. Yeah, it was... It, I've seen that one picture in the back of somebody's ute. In the ute, yeah, that was, was on the front like, page of the newspaper. That was ridiculous. They're was, dragons. They're absolutely massive. Yeah, I was, like... Mm, that's not real. And then I was reading through a book or something, and the same picture was in there. And I was like, "Well, it's in a book. It must be right." But <laughs> they were huge. Yeah. So that rule isn't around now. Obviously, this is no. like the seventies and eighties. But um, for the crocodiles. Mm-hmm. But the only time I've ever heard a rule like that is because they're a pest. You see it with snakes and things I as think, well. Honestly, I think part of it was let's go have some fun. Hunting game was a sport. Yeah, but they would just shoot them and leave them there and take the heads. Also. You decimate the buffalo population, you, dec- you decimate the indigenous population. True. So there was a part of... Livelihood. Yeah. That's a very good point. So that could have been part of it too, because there was very much a systematic legislation to try and either assimilate or eradicate mm-hmm. the indigenous people. So that was part of it. Like, let's have some fun while we do it too. It always makes me very intrigued that you're a savage because you don't pillage like I do. Yeah. Because you are one with nature, you are living in this prehistoric mm. mindset, and that makes you a savage because you appreciate what the earth gives you. And I think yeah. that always, um, I never really understood that mindset of why it's like that. Well, and people had this vision of, well, you don't live in a house. and You, you don't, don't see the way that I do. Yeah, you don't have writing and you don't have literature mm-hmm. and it's not the way I understand it and it's so different so it's wrong. Like that documentary we watched and he was telling us the story about um, that gentleman, Starlight. Yeah. He was had his son missing and he prayed to nature that if you give my son back to me, I won't, I won't hunt, I won't fish, I won't hurt nature anymore. And that was the bargain that he made to get his son back. And I think that it really puts in perspective the center around spirituality and nature that the indigenous population has. See, if a white guy said that um, at the same time, he would just be like, but it's prosperous for me to go hunting and fishing, so therefore it's going to benefit me, fuck nature. Yeah. And that's exactly the, the complete opposite, um, and that's what he was trying to highlight Which is, there. I, I was researching the spiral. Right. Yeah. That- on uh, the canteen. Yeah, because yeah. it, it zoomed in on it a couple of times. I think it was just a marking to say that this is the same canteen. So so supposedly it's the official symbol of the World Pantheist Movement, 
which basically promotes that spirituality is centered around nature. Oh, that's cool. Hmm. Which is, I thought was really interesting. Um, but then was also, I was reading that um, it's speculated that it means growth and evolution, which I guess you can relate because... They're both kind of relevant. Yeah, yeah but Glass also carries around the canteen that has the spiral on it, and he grows and evolves throughout the movie. So I guess you could look at it in two senses. But I just, um, yeah, I didn't quite understand. But then, here you go. I'm loving this symbolic perspective you're lending to us here. This is cool. I'm a real big believer in the symbolism that directors and stuff put in. Particularly people like this. Yeah. Yes. I mentioned in the Arrival episode, and I would recommend just listening to the first part of that episode because I was talking about how we're very much in like a renaissance of film directors at the moment. Yes. And you've got people like Denis Villeneuve and uh, Alejandro Naritu, Alfonso Cuaron, Christopher Nolan, all these people that are doing things that no one is really doing anymore. And 50 years from now, we're going to look back at them as the Alfred Hitchcocks of this time. Um, and it's people like this. And the the I'm so surprised that this isn't in the top 250 because I feel like when it came out, uh, it was praised for just the award season and then it was forgotten. It probably isn't because, A, it is so long and people don't have time to sit and appreciate a movie for so long. But also because it is lacking dialogue, it is lacking action, it is... You do have to get immersed. It's a film. And majority of the population don't want that. Yeah. They want those brain-dead movies. Going back to that westernized mentality, um, I think the reason that people from Europe evolved and progressed more than anywhere else in the world is because they were so savage, really. Like, they were very violent, and you had to progress, otherwise you'd get wiped out. So I they had a conversation the other day with someone, and they completely disagreed with me. But I'm... Really? I'd like to hear the, the perspectives there. You would have to um, evolve your weapons, your science, your medicine, your architecture, your technology, mm-hmm. in order to be a more progressive civilization. Well, if you either... don't adapt, you die. If exactly. You and I think the indigenous people of any nation who were seen as, quote-unquote, more... Uh, barbaric and savage is because that they had more of a an understanding of peace not only with nature but within themselves yes well also to note there were still wars that happened between tribes yes right it's just their technology was on level with each other the european technology was so much more advanced that when they came over they didn't stand a chance yes but within themselves in europe they were more aimed to wipe each other out like they were more yeah it was on a different level to other nations, and it's interesting that they see the natives as the unprogressive savages when them, they themselves are only progressed because they're savage. Yeah, yeah. I was having a conversation the other day, and this should be completely cut from the podcast, because <laughs> white people don't have culture. And they were arguing with me, well, well, indigenous people don't have culture. And I was like... Yes, they fucking do. You can't say that white culture is pillaging and taking and raping and like where like Vikings, where yeah. where the indigenous population. Because he was like, oh well, Aboriginals don't have culture. I was like, yes, they do. They're one with the land and they're one with the universe and the spirituality and all this sort of stuff. And I have this understanding where we just take, 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 take. So that just shows that you have such a lack of understanding. I was like, as what, to what the culture? But every is. time I say white people don't have culture, and they're like, well, I disagree. And I was like, well, tell me what it is. Yeah. You te- you tell me what it is. If you can make a justified argument about what white culture is, 
I will listen, but you can you just point it somewhere else because you don't have an answer. No, I, th- I think there is a white culture, particularly um, in countries like you know, in Europe, right? You got to look at like the UK. Mm-hmm. I think they have a very distinct way of doing things and a way that they approach certain things. It's not necessarily these days as that pillaging and, and taking sort of thing, but it, they do have their own culture. It's not as deep and spiritual as any other native culture, but it is there. I I'd think agree it, with I think it exists, but I see what you're saying. And yeah. you, you run into problems when you look at colonies so i've asked myself this question for a long time and struggled to come up with an answer what is canadian culture it's basically well it's not this and it's not this and it's not this but what is it you know what i mean so being canadian and coming to australia australians have a very distinct culture distinct from brits distinct from americans distinct from canadians it's very much a mixture of i would say british and canadian because we're influenced from north america as well as uk it was definitely more uk particularly like in the turn of the last century but we're becoming more and more influenced by north america so i'm I'm feeling a mixture there yeah the issue i see is that um this is very much on a tangent yes can we, can we talk about it? Yeah, anyway? sure. As long as my argument about not having white culture is taken out, then I don't care. It wasn't yeah. that bad. Oh, it does not. People get really offended that if I If you that. say that there is no white culture. Yeah. Like, you're talking about white Australian culture. I think there is, but it's because I've got something to compare it to. So compared mm. to Brits and Canadians, Australians are a lot more like Brits, and I think that's influenced by the 10-pound palms. Because you had an influx. There's a lot of reasons as to why there's a lot of British culture. I think it was much more before the war. But I think that's had a huge part to play because you had a huge influx of people relatively recently. Yes. So, like, you inevitably bring things with you. That said, if I was to say, are Aussies more like Canadians or Americans? They're more like Canadians in the way that they think, but they're more like Americans in the way that they act. And I say that in that... Aussies just don't give a shit. Like, Australians that I've noticed, they say what they think, and they don't worry about political correctness, which is a good thing. Just going back to what you were saying before, in regards to your conversation about, it could be controversial, about how uh, white people don't have culture. I don't think you should be afraid to say what you're thinking as long as you're able to, you're not just saying a blanket statement, you're willing to have a conversation, right? And you have facts. Yes. Well, it's like, here's my opinion, which I'm allowed to have, and you're allowed to have yours. I'm going to list off my reasons. You list off yours. Let's have a talk about it. And if anyone in the comments or whatever, anyone who's listening to this disagrees with anything that I say on any of these episodes, have a conversation with me. Reach out. You know, I'm I'm so open to it. I'm so open to you educating myself. If you can disagree and can provide a just response, then I will have a conversation very placidly all day. Every day. But if you're just going to say, that nah, you're wrong. Yeah, and don't listen. Fight. Like, I do know that I came out very hard and very strong in regards to white people not necessarily having a culture. When you made that statement about, we do, it's just not as spiritual or deep as indigenous cultures or other cultures out there. I find that that's accurate. Mm. I think humans are notorious for being wrong and we have to accept that we, we could be wrong. We're all allowed our opinions and our, we, we could be wrong. So um, I'm open to changing my thoughts as long as you present your, your argument well. 100%. And just being open open to have that conversation. We've really gone on the tangent yeah, with this yeah. one. So. It's an important thing to talk about. Um, is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Mm, I really like the the end scene where Tom Hardy says... 
you came all this way for revenge. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it. And in the documentary, Alejandro speaks about how once you have this anger and this demon basically that's inside of you and you're searching and you're bloodthirsty for revenge and once it's gone, you're left empty. And that's exactly Leonardo. He's kneeling in the snow and he sees his wife and his wife turns away from him and walks off and you just see this despair and the deprivation that's in his eyes that he no longer really has a purpose anymore. He's mm-hmm. done what he had to do and now there's nothing left. He's empty. Mm-hmm. I really like that. I wanted to talk about the score really briefly. This was my oh, last point. Yes, It's nice. not obvious, but it's it's definitely there. It makes you feel lonely. The way you described it yesterday is when you're out in the snow in the wilderness, that's almost like the music that you hear. Yeah, so I really wanted to talk about that. I... I really try and make a point of being present in the moment. And so what I used to do in the winter, because it would get dark at like 4.30 or whatever, mm-hmm. um, I'd get all rugged up in my big coat and my ski pants and boots. And pretty much all that would be showing was like my eyes or maybe my nose, right? If I wasn't too cold. And I would go out at night in the dark and just go for a walk because I had my family had quite a big property, so I had a, a lot of places I could go, and my dogs would come with me, so I was safe from all the critters. But um, I'd go out, and I just—it was so quiet. And if it was a clear night, you could see the stars, and you could see so many stars in the winter. Or even if it was snowing, you'd just hear the wind. And I heard that music, and I thought to myself. Like, I would lay down in the snowbank and you could, you just felt like you were on a cloud because you're just in snow. And that's what, to me, that's what that music sounded like. Nostalgic. Yes, but just like laying there and just feeling nothing and hearing nothing but the world. Very cathartic. Yeah, because there's so many scenes where he is just laying in the snow. And to me, I'm like, that's what that sounded like. It was just such a weird thing to think. Like, if there was music that I'd be hearing, this is what it would be. So do you think that he tried to make it... um, It was almost majestic. As organic as possible, in a sense? I think so. And, like... It's relaxing, because I think that's what nature does. You you wouldn't want something sporadic and, like... But to me, that that's really interesting to someone who that doesn't have those memories and mm-hmm. has never had that experience. Someone that's n- never seen snow mm-hmm. ever. To me, the score makes me feel, and I think of one particular scene where it's just this open shot, and you can see him, and he's this tiny little speck yep. as the camera starts to zoom in, and it's this orchestra of music, and it makes me feel lonely. Like I yep. really get a sense of how alone that Hugh Glass really is in this in this moment and how overwhelmed the environment makes you feel when you it makes you feel insignificant. You're a speck in the universe. Yes. Yeah, and that's what it's conveying and that's honestly really what I felt too because in that moment where I'm laying in a snowbank and I'm comfortable, right? Because I'm warm and everything. But I'm just like I'm just I'm just a dot in this. Mm-hmm. That's well, what I feel. You... I just really wanted to bring that up because I wanted to convey that experience to anyone who's never felt it yeah. before um, and see what you have I to think say. It's, I think it's really great. Um, you know, originally you sent me a message um, saying, oh, I don't know if I want to do The Revenant because it, it, it appears boring, but you, you dive into this movie 
and you are so immersed and you are so involved and you want to know what's going to happen. Is he going to survive? Is he going to die? And I feel that if you think that this movie is boring, you You don't don't get it. You don't understand what it's about. And I will readily admit that, like, I didn't understand it before going into it. It's been the fourth time that I've watched this movie. And every time I notice something new and I love it more and more every time. Like, it's just, and as I, as a person, grow and develop, I find a new appreciation for the movie every time I watch it. And I just have to say it'd be one of my favorite movies of all time. I think it's interesting that you had that idea of this movie before ever seeing it. Um, and I think that's why it's it's so underrated because people might have that idea of this movie without seeing it. So therefore it's not in the top 250. Does that mm. make any sense? Mm. Well, yeah, because what I honestly thought it was, I'm like, it's a guy in the woods and he gets attacked by the bear. Woo. That, that's what I thought it. it was. Yeah. And... I just think it's so educational. I described it as a character piece set beautifully in a nature documentary. It's so, it again, like I said at the start, it's just, just this beautifully raw film about a man and his will to survive. Like, what does he say? Um, it's the opening opening line that he says to his son. As long as you're alive, keep breathing, and all that sort of stuff. He's like, he hears it again, and his son says it to him as he's, literally basically on the cusp of death just keep breathing and keep going and that's very indicative because there are moments where you're like how is this man still going like why don't you just give up but then it's just he has to seek that revenge and that's he's like puts it perfectly when he's laying in the ice cave and he's like Fitzgerald killed my son and it adds real credence to the mindset of the character Mm. also i got a really important question i'm so sorry okay a part that I don't understand is at the beginning, with the Native Americans come and they pillage and they do all that fun stuff, in quotations, um, and that man, he just shoots pops, the horse. Pops the horse in the head. Like, what, what? I don't understand why. Well, it's like, well, we can't have this horse anymore, so we don't want you to have it. Yeah, it was more valuable to the white people than it was to the natives. So they didn't want them to get away or come back and, and use it. I don't know. Yeah. But that wouldn't... The natives do use the horses, though, so it doesn't make any sense. I Uh, think, honestly, the most logical thing is that, like, well, this is going to make things easier for you. I don't want it to be easier for you. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah. I know, but there was two there, and he just shot one. There was, like, three, I think. Oh, okay. But still, you only shot one. I'd like to take this opportunity to announce that next month's honorable mention is Rain Man from 1988, I think it is, which I'm very surprised is not in there because it got Best Picture. It won a lot of Oscars, got a lot of appraise. So uh, we're going to talk about Rain Man next week. Next month. Next month. <laughs> Jessica will be joining us again for... Many uh, future episodes. Yes, but the next one will be One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which oh, I believe I love that is movie. episode 16. So yeah. it's only a couple of weeks away. Yeah. I think it's released uh, at the end of May. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We have been Danielle and Brenton this week. Thanks for joining us. Feel free to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or comment on SoundCloud. And until next time, thanks for listening. They get off the boat and you see a donkey, like, uh, taking some of the yeah. things off. From... God damn it. Hello. Hello.
that? Hmm? What was that? They're looking for people for a market survey age 50 to 75. I'm like, well, there's no one here. That age, so. <laughs> the amount of times I get a random phone number and then I answer it and it's like, Ni hong hong, honey, ni hong. I'm like, for fuck's sake. <laughs> block. See, I block it and then two days later I get another one and it's a different number and I go block it. I'm like, for fuck's sake. Sorry about that. I don't know where they get these my numbers from. Fucking should be sorry. Okay. And it follows the donkey as it. And it <laughs> <laughs> keep that thought in your head long enough. <laughs> it starts on the boat and then the donkey sort of gets <laughs> Why is the word donkey so funny? <laughs>